From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. And no one explores that intersection better than Sister Simone Campbell, a nun on the bus. This is an audio clip from the film Radical Grace. We're going on the road to push back on the Republican Ryan budget and to lift up the needs of people who work at the economic margins of our society. that CEOs would get an increase when the very people who create their wealth don't. And what Paul Ryan wants us to think, and what he says is, it's his Catholic social teaching that made him do that. His Catholic social teaching. If he had never uttered those words, I don't think we'd have a bus trip. But a bus trip they had indeed all over the country, talking with real people, their economic situations, and inviting the rest of America to get off the couch and reclaim democracy. My guest is Sister Simone Campbell. Uh, she is the author of A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. Uh, Sister Simone Campbell has served as executive director of Network, a national Catholic uh, social justice lobby. Uh, she's a religious leader, an attorney, and poet with extensive experience in public policy and advocacy for systemic change. In Washington, she lobbies on issues of peace building, immigration reform, health care, and economic justice. In 2012, she was instrumental in organizing the Nuns on the Bus Tour of nine states to oppose the Ryan budget approved by the House of Representatives. This budget uh, would have decimated programs meant to help people in need, and Nuns on the Bus received an avalanche of attention across the nation from religious communities, elected officials, and the media. Last year, uh, she led a new cross-country nuns on the bus trip uh, in June of 2013 focused on comprehensive immigration reform. She's here to talk about uh, nuns on the bus, uh, the network, and social justice and faith. Welcome, Sister Simone, to Religion for Life. Oh, delighted to be with you. Uh, your book is called uh, A Nun on the Bus. Can you help us, first of all, with the terminology, a woman religious, a sister, and nun? <laughs> I know, it gets pretty confusing. Um, actually, I'm a woman religious, which is the 20th, 21st century way of talking about women who live the vowed life in community. Uh, nuns are actually usually cloistered sisters who live in within a wall and are considered uh, contemplative. They take public, formal vows. Those of us that are more active in the world are uh, known as sisters, so there's a real... Uh, canon law within the Roman Catholic Church. There's a real legal distinction between the two, but what happened was um, everyone in the United States sort of just refers to, uh, uses the two words interchangeably, uh, sisters and nuns and women religious is what, how we refer to ourselves. So um, we acquiesce to popular demand and just use the term nuns. Uh, to refer to us, even though it's not uh, totally accurate who we are. Uh, but 
in a popular world referred to as nuns. So that's what we did. A nun on the bus is really uh, because of the notoriety that we got from our bus trip starting in 2012 and then again in 2013. So it just seemed like a great way to try to summarize and encapsulate what my friends in the advertising community tell me is you have a really strong brand. So you should use your brand. <laughs> so that's what we were doing with the title. And so that made it, yeah, of course, it made for a catchy slogan, uh, better than women religious on the bus. Absolutely. Our sisters on the bus, it was too. And you know what? We um, originally just joked around and called it that after we got the idea for the bus trip after talking with colleagues in D.C. And so we were just joking around saying nuns on the bus. But we needed a serious title, we said. So we finally created a serious title, send it to our designer, and she thought it was a tagline for the trip. So she just kept it as nuns on the bus. So she sent back the design, and it was beautiful. It was exquisite, but it was nuns on the bus. And so in some ways, it was like the way I look at it, it was the Holy Spirit was doing making mischief yet again, and it was the perfect title. <laughs> Absolutely. Now tell me a little bit about the organization network. You've been the executive director for about 10 years now. What, what is it that you do, and what policies are you working on? Well, our organization was founded by 47 Catholic sisters in 1971 in December. We opened our doors in December of 72, and for this 40-plus years, we've worked on Capitol Hill to try to improve the quality of federal legislation and federal policies that will keep in mind the needs of those at the margins of our society, in our world, and the needs of the planet. So the issues that we work on primarily are, at this point, are some of the economic justice issues, uh, protecting the safety net, increasing wages, um, making sure that the 100% are cared for in our society and in our economy. We also are working really hard on immigration reform, though we've had some really challenging setbacks and recently. So that's a really tough one that we stay committed to. And healthcare reform. Uh, it's shocking that we're the only industrialized nation in the world where our people do not have access, all our people do not have access to healthcare. And so we worked hard to expand the access to healthcare in Obamacare. And we continue to try to improve it and to make sure that everyone gets coverage. So those are kind of the big Roman numerals that we focus on. Now, when people tell you that religious folks should stay out of politics, that it's that it's fine to feed the hungry, but getting political about policy is, is meddling, how, how do you respond to that? Well, right now we have a great pope who's addressed that issue. And what he has said is that... Um, and I'll quote from the uh, quote from this is an authentic faith, which is never comfortable or completely personal, always involves a deep desire to change the world, to transmit values, to leave this earth a better, somehow better than we found it. This so that then he goes on and says this means that we cannot and must not remain on the sidelines in the fight for justice. And that what we are as Christians, he challenges us to, is to bring hope and a commitment to the common good. And so that's what we're about, is struggling to find the way forward that benefits the 100%. The way forward, as in my tradition, of Jesus, as a Christian, 
how Jesus did. Jesus always went to the folks who were struggling, uh, to the those who were sick, to those who were engaged. And then, you know what he did? He challenged the rulers. He challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And before he was killed, he challenged Pilate. And so within my faith tradition, we have a long tradition of what we call Catholic social teaching, which is all about the integration of our Christian life, faith, and values into the struggle to make a better world. And right now in our nation, we've got some work to do, in my view. Yes, we do have some work to do. And you mentioned uh, Pope Francis and made that marvelous quote from him. So well, can you say, what do you make of Pope Francis? Uh, some some say that he's he's a nice face on the same policies, and others say, no, he is a positive face for change for the Church. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think just by his very person, he's making change, and what he sees is that he needs to engage everyone in dialogue. And uh, last November, he issued this uh, Joy of the Gospel exhortation, and in it, he said um, that there, in order to create peace, bring everyone together for economic justice, what we have to do is have long processes or have processes of dialogue that include everyone. But that rather than getting stuck in our theories, we need to look at the lives of real people. And it's the lives of real people that will make a difference. And that was the glory of our bus trip, was that we touched real people's lives. And I have hundreds of ways that my life was touched by the people that we met. And that is the way forward. So I think while he may not be changing dogma, He's trying to, one, reform our structures, which haven't been reformed for 500 years, so they probably could use a little reformation. And um, he also is lifting up the reality of real people and saying that our policies need to be based in real people's lives. For me, that's hope-inducing. It's wonderful. Well, tell us, so let's talk a little bit about that Nun on the Bus tour. How did that get started, and, and what was the significance of that tour? Well, it all got started because, uh, well, I should start that we. In uh, 2012, April 14th, my little organization had a, with nine full-time staff, had our 40th anniversary party in uh, D.C. And the big question was, how do we get our mission known? How do we let people know that we've been working on Capitol Hill for 40 years? What do we do? And we had all these teeny little ideas. But in our closing prayer, our closing prayer included this prayer that we might uh, be able to get uh, a prayer petition that we might be able to get our message out. You have to be really careful what you pray for, because four days later, April 18th, the Vatican issued a censure against women religious in the United States and named our little organization as being a bad influence. Well, now the thing that happens in our country is when you got a little bit of conflict, you get media attention. And so it was the media attention that I quickly knew that I could respond to the press because we don't have a direct connection to Rome. Our organization is a, a nonprofit incorporated here in the U.S. But my sisters in the leadership conference that was the focus of the center had to be really engaged in, in serious conversations with the Vatican. So I had a freedom that they didn't have. But my prayer quickly became, how do we use this moment for mission? How can we lift up the needs of people in our society, because this isn't about us, this is about the needs of people in our country. And the results turned out to be nuns on the bus, because what came to me, I'm imagining a bunch of your listeners are, are Christian, and they know the Christian reference, but do you know the, the scripture about uh, the Samaritan woman at the well? 
and Jesus is out in Samaria, which isn't Israel, a strange land. A man is not supposed to talk to a woman. A Jew who's not supposed to talk to a Samaritan. And what does he do? He asks her for help, and she's an outcast from her village. And so while I don't want to say my friends in the secular community are outcasts, um, what came to me out of meditating on that scripture was to go ask for help outside our regular boundaries and to ask beyond the faith community. And so colleagues came together in D.C., and the sign of the Holy Spirit for me is that no one remembers in the city who want, everybody wants to claim credit for something that works. No one remembers who first said road trip in that meeting. But after an hour and a half meeting, we were going on the road. I had no idea what I was getting into. But I just knew that we needed to push back against the Ryan budget as being the wrong way forward and lift up the needs of our, our people around the country and the fabulous work of Catholic Sisters. So it was that impetus uh, that resulted in what I call lightning. The Holy Spirit just really created a whole bunch of lightning strikes in that first bus trip. But it was a powerful moment of connecting people and the reality of our nation. So um, what were some of the stories that, that you heard from people on that bus trip? What, what did you hear about America? Oh, my glory. Um, let me give you a few of them. The one that is probably most powerful for me, because the, the need continues, is in Cincinnati, um, a, a genie brought a picture of her sister Margaret to me uh, when we had our evening gathering in Cincinnati section over the line. And Jeannie came directly from Margaret's memorial service. And the reason Jeannie came was that Margaret had lost her job in the recession. And when she lost her job, she lost her health care. And when she lost her health care, she could no longer be screened for things such as colon cancer. And even though her family had a propensity to colon cancer, she knew she was at risk. She couldn't afford it with just unemployment benefits, and it was so hard to find another job at 56. So Margaret ended up getting colon cancer, and she, by the time she got to the hospital, she literally was carried into the hospital. Um, she was terminally ill and ended up dying. And so Jeannie bring, brought me her picture uh, direct from the memorial service, and I carry it in my Bible uh, that I travel with because... While Obamacare has limitations, it's not a perfect bill, the fact is if states expand to include Medicaid expansion for adults like Margaret, no more Margaret should die. And that they would at least get treatment. Um, in the richest nation on earth, that is the least we can do for hardworking people that get left out. I mean, it, it's just shocking. The other piece that's really hard, that really matters to me deeply about that issue, is that it's pro-life. Sometimes when we get involved in the pro-life conversation, we're only about birth. And we forget that we have an obligation from conception to natural death. And in my view, Margaret's death was not natural. Margaret's death was preventable, and she could have been a continuing, contributing member of our society. So Margaret's story fuels my passion for Medicaid expansion, making sure all states expand to include the needs of single adults who are left out because they've lost their jobs. The second piece of that, though, which showed me how community, how this is really community, is I got to see Jeannie uh, about eight months ago, and 
she told me that because I've been talking about Margaret, her family's been able to reconcile themselves to Margaret's death. They felt so guilty. But my talking about Margaret helped them see that maybe there was some meaning in an otherwise senseless death. And that has been healing for their family. And isn't that the perfect expression of community? Where I find them nourishing to me, and they find me nourishment to, for them. It, 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 it's a perfect community, in my view. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Sister Simone Campbell. She is the author of A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. And and you also, on this bus tour, told uh, heard stories uh, of people and, in need and, and making community. And, and you also uh, see this as an opportunity for people to uh, get up and, and do some things, uh, as you put it, to stop being such couch potatoes. Uh, do, you, do you find people feeling rather helpless and powerless? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the serious problems in our nation, is what people have forgotten is we're a democracy, and democracy requires hard work and participation. Now, one of the challenges is, is many politicians would rather have us on the couch quietly just cheering for our team and uh, not being engaged in the hard conversations of politics. But the fact is, if our democracy is to succeed, we, the people, have got to stand up and talk to each other about what matters, not just sporting events, not just our favorite team, but rather, what are the tough issues of our time? How do we provide for the common good? What is the role of government in ensuring that the excesses of the market are constrained? How do we lift up the needs of our neighbor? And what is our role in the world? Those are really key questions of our time, but of the things that we've found on the bus and I've found as I speak around the country is people are frightened, afraid, that they feel alone, that nobody has their back. And so, of course, if I feel totally alone and frightened, I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to protect them and I'm going to pull up the drawbridge and I'm not going to be involved because I'm afraid. But, you know, in our Christian tradition, Jesus says over and over, fear not. It's in community that we are better. And so what I keep urging is folks to do what I call grocery store missionary work. I don't know. I don't stand in line in too many places, but in the grocery store I do. And you can say to the, I often say to the person in front of me or behind me, hey, have you thought about raising the minimum wage? What do you think? I'm curious. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about wages or I'm worried about immigration reform. What do you think? What do you think we ought to do as a nation? This seems intolerable. Because if we the people don't begin having some serious conversations, getting involved, then we'll lose our democracy in this fear-driven world. So I encourage all your listeners, get active, get involved. And the thing is, is to be able to listen to each other. Bring, it's not about telling each other, you know, just lecturing each other. We've got to have conversation to understand each other's point of view. Where do you come from? Why do you think that? Be curious about other points of view. It's hard to do sometimes. Isn't that what we, isn't our democracy worth it? Now, I do it because of faith, and, and that's where I come from. But where we meet in a pluralistic society is the Constitution, and those are the same basic values near as I can tell. So we, the people, standing up is so important. We've got to get off the couch and get engaged. 
you know, your book is, is uh, in a sense, an autobiography of, of your work, and it includes a, a deep spirituality. Um, and, and I'm thinking of people that I read uh, as I was reading. You talked about Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament professor, um, as, as well as a Zen teacher that uh, helped you see that God is the hum uh, that holds the thing together. Um, was there a moment in which you've had some spiritual awakenings uh, towards uh, social justice and faith? Well, I actually sort of grew up with it. When I was young, I, I really was keen. I grew up in Southern California in the 60s and the, was keenly aware of civil rights and the civil rights struggle. Um, so early on, uh, I knew that Jesus was not just about the 2,000 years ago. Jesus is about now and our challenge to be God's body in the world. But I must say the deeper place has been... Um, to realize that uh, God, I, I describe it as my experience is that God hums us at every moment, that we are never left orphaned, that God is not far from us. But you know where that's tough is with people I disagree with. And I realized that I had a, a what I called my mistake of God list. Folks, it just annoyed me. I'm sure we all have those lists. Mm-hmm. But the conversion moment for me was to realize that if I'm at odds with the God in them, I'm at odds with the God in me. And so that conversion for me is to really move me to realize that social justice is for the 100%. Everyone needs to be included in my care, and we have that the call of Jesus is to call all of us to stepping into community. Um, so that was a very profound moment that continues to shape what I try to do. Now, I've, uh, it, it, within the Catholic tradition, we have confession, so probably I ought to confess my sins that I'm not good at it all the time, because sometimes in politics you just want to, as I say, slap them upside the head. How could they possibly think that when I get on my righteous high horse? But the fact is, is we are all made by a loving creator, and all require my loving response. And if we did more of that, then I think we can find the common good. If we all held each other's concerns at the heart of our care, it would make a huge difference. Also in the book, you talk about um, earlier, before network time, uh, on the eve of the Iraq war, that uh, you ended up feeling a call to go to Iraq and hear and hear those stories. And uh, and I was um, fascinated by that story and how how you 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 learned a great deal uh, from the people there and from the situation there. And I'm thinking about now as Iraq is starting to build up again. Uh, what, what do you think about that, and what, what could be a response for Americans? Well, I, I must confess, when this latest uh, uh, uprising in Iraq, I just wept, and, and I'm still in touch when we can be with some of the people that we met, especially the Iraqi Dominican sisters in, uh, that are based in, were based in Mosul and had just moved to Karakush which uh, 40,000 Christians led Karakush because of this uprising. Because what happened was, as I understand from the sisters, is that when the uh, ISIL, the uh, Islamic uh, folks were rising, the Kurds, who are a, a different uh, uh, sect, or not, I mean, a um, different ethnicity, they're not Arabs, so they tried to take advantage of the instability and grab more land and were persecuting the Christians. And so 40,000 Christians fled Karakush. Now, some of them have gone back, but the Dominican sisters had 
uh, left Mosul because their place kept getting uh, caught in crossfire and bombs during various parts of the conflict. So they're just building their new place in Karakush, and then they get driven out. The anguish of the people of Iraq is huge. But the other piece that we have no idea about in the United States is that uh, like 60% of the population is under 25. So their basically only experience of growing up is conflict, is war. They have no other uh, experience. Uh, a couple weeks ago, a, a, a woman that we had met on a dele- on the delegation uh, brought her two teenage daughters to the United States from Iraq before it blew up on this latest upheaval of violence because her daughters thought that the United States was only military. They had no other experience of the United States, and they were coming to hate us because mm. they saw us as a source of the conflict. Pascal brought her daughters to the United States to see the difference, to experience the reality, because she knew words would not do it. And that experience goes over and over and over in Iraq. And often, um, I have heard from Iraqis, please show us another face. Don't just show us your military face. We had thought if you came, you would bring education. We thought if you came, you would bring health care and government and democracy it brought nothing but violence. It breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. Sister Simone Campbell, author of A Nun on the Bus, the executive director of Network, uh, my guest on Religion for Life. And, Sister, we just we just have about a minute left. Can you tell us a little bit uh, of what you're working on uh, right now? Is there another, for example, bus tour in the works? Oh, there's a potential bus trip this fall. I, I'm still raising money, but our big worry is that we the people need to stand up, as we were saying, don't be couch potatoes. But the other piece is is that big money, what I call big money, uh, the, the wealth of a few wants to control our politics. The fact is uh, they've been given all kinds of permission by the Supreme Court to use their money to buy ads, but we the people uh, still have the vote. And so we're hoping to be able to raise that message this fall because We've got to be, to save our nation, we need to be engaged in our democracy. It's urgent. It's required. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of patriotism. It's a matter of justice. So that's what we're working on. Sister Simone Campbell, my guest, thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life, and thank you for this important book and your work, uh, A Nun on the Bus, how, we, how All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. Thanks again for being with us, Sister. What a delight. Thank you so much. You can find more information about Nuns on the Bus at networklobby.org. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts by going to religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee and WEHC-FM in River Virginia. Be well.